Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Let's go. Focus Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another episode of Focus on Metal. So this week, we will be digging in with author Matt Karp, and he is releasing a brand new book called Tool on Track, which is his uh, sixth book that he's done on the music industry, and this is one of those... uh, type of books we've we've you know interviewed other authors on the show as well with kind of you know every track every song type of thing and so this is what the uh, the tool book is but Matt's also written for uh, a couple of different publications power play as well as uh, down for life and also in the books he's got uh, he's done we own the night which is the underground of modern American hard rock and he did uh, two new metal volumes he did resurgence and he also did the definitive guide to new metal and he's done a corn on track book as well but this week we are here to talk to matt about the brand new book on tool which is called tool every album every song and again it's part of the on track series and Matt does talk a little bit about the release dates. We're trying to get this out there before it actually gets released. Right now, current release date here in the States, I believe, is on the 30th of September. And it's a little earlier than that in his native England. So we'll get to our talk with Matt in just a few minutes. But hey, you know what? I want to take this opportunity to get up on my Focus on Metal soapbox and just uh, spin a little bit of truth against all of the BS that was reported recently, geez, all across the U.S. on the uh, the supposed almost near riot at the Extreme Show. It's killing me, it's killing me, it's killing me, it's killing me. Everything pisses me off, everything pisses me off, everything pisses me off. So first off, I will call a great, big, huge bullshit call on near riot and i can do that because i was at the show and uh sitting well it was supposed to be second row but the way they worked it out we were ended up being uh front row but uh yeah they do you know they did have their sound turned off nuno did get pissed off about that and for those of you that you know they haven't had the opportunity to sit really close to the stage a lot of times when a lot of the PA goes down, you don't really notice it because you're getting everything off the stage. And the same would go for, you know, for Nuno with the band is, is it was pretty obvious, you know, us up front, them, we didn't really hear the PA go down, but people in the back, you definitely could. So yeah, they went through a couple of songs where uh, apparently back there, they weren't hearing uh, very much. So, you know, did Nuno get pissed? Yeah, of course he got pissed. What do you mean? What the hell? You you book a band into a into a venue, you don't have their sound shut off all of a sudden. That's that's bullshit. So I don't blame him for being uh, a little bit pissed off about that. You know, did Gary and Pat just walk off to the side of the stage while Nuno vented about stuff? Yeah, they did that too. But did the uh, the bulk of us sitting out in the audience start to riot? No, fuck no. 
And, you know, quite honestly, Nuno was on a roll that night anyways. He had already uh, bitched at a girl in the front row who was flipping him off through the first couple of songs, which is, I agree with him. If you're going to sit in the front row, why are you sitting there flipping me off? You could go watch any other band somewhere else. And he was having problems with his, you know, precious main Washburn N4 as well. And, you know, that can lend some stress as well. And then after all of that, you find out that, your sound's getting deliberately fucked with. Yeah, you're going to take the opportunity to get a little bit pissed off and say what you want to say. And you know what? Kudos to him to actually have the balls to, if he's pissed off, say something. But again, were we rioting? Was he inciting us and telling us to riot? No, he wasn't. So this whole inciting a riot, near riot, all of that, I'm calling, like I said, giant ass call of bullshit on that one. And then the other interesting part of it was that You know, this happened on the 2nd of September, and it took until, I believe it was the night before they were appearing with Aerosmith at the uh, big Fenway anniversary show, that suddenly this story breaks out into all of the news outlets. So, what the hell is that? Kind of really convenient timing. If this was some near-riot event, it takes you a week to report such a thing. So yeah, just I you know I needed to get that out there because there's a lot of of BS that's going on and I'm hoping that maybe I will be able to uh you know get a hold of even maybe Gary or you know one of the other guys in the band and just hey kind of talk through that as well and get their perspective on it. So we'll see, you know, if I can make that happen or not. But again, you know, all of that was out there and you know a lot of it was just total BS. And uh, I will say, hey, as long as I'm talking about it, they came out, they put on a great show. And these were, the, you know, they did about four or five warm-up gigs before the Fenway show, doing a few different things. This is kind of a smaller venue. Um, I think it's about like 2,500 people outside. And this is actually, honestly, the first time at this venue that I've ever had any kind of problem at a show that, or a band has had any problem at the show and so you know not only did they have their sound fucked with by the police but um there was also you know bitching about curfew and stuff like that and uh, they ended up actually even cutting two songs out of the tail end of their set they basically put it up to a vote three songs that they had left we voted they really only had time to do one because of all the crap that was going on and you know i agree with nuno with his assertion during his supposed inciting that he said that you know if you have all of these potential issues then why the hell would you book a band like us to come play here so i would think that unfortunately they're probably never going to play that venue again and it is you know it's a cool venue it's by a lake outside it's you know pretty usually pretty chill laid back this was definitely an anomaly i, I will say though that as uh, taking my girlfriend's daughter, her first concert, got to be right up front and she got to see a completely unscripted live show. And that was good. So she saw that warts and all right from up close and she actually had a really good time. So I'm hoping that, you know, they will schedule more dates beyond the Aerosmith show. And if they do, and you have a chance to go see Extreme, then I would definitely urge you to go and check them out. They haven't lost anything at all. I only did a few of those obligatory acoustic-y kind of things, but most of it was uh, straight balls out good stuff. And like I said, I'll see whether or not I can, you know, maybe hook up with Gary. It's kind of, I've got this situation of, uh, uh, what do you want to call it? Probably about a four degrees of separation 
uh, with Gary. I'm not even going to get through it. But basically, uh, you know, I could probably get some word back to him relatively easily and see if he wants to uh, to come on and talk. And, you know, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just wants to let the whole thing lie. And, and you know, I wouldn't blame him. But anyways, you know, Nuno got to use his soapbox that night. I think he was perfectly fine with what he did. We didn't freaking riot. With all that out of the way, I think I will stop with uh, with my crap. And I want to get into the reason we're really having the show this week. And that is so we can listen to Richie talk with Matt Carp all about his upcoming book on Tool, every album, every song. Hello. Is that Matt? It is, yeah. Hi, Matt. It's Richie here for the interview. Hiya. How you doing? So what what I want to, I want to start with those sort of books in general. Now, I, I've gotten books sent from Stephen. Um, and uh-huh. they, do, they do a lot of different type of books. Like you did a book on new metal and then they'll cover a certain era of a band. And then I've had some of the authors on that they do what, what you're doing with the tool book, which is track by track on every record. Um, yeah. Do you pitch the idea to Stephen or does he ask you which one do you want to do? So the first, uh, the new metal book, I approached him. I found him in a, in a writing magazine. He was kind of sort of promoting Sonic Bond and um, he was basically saying, you know, if there's any music writers out there that, you know, looking to get published. Um, so, yeah, I contacted with him. So as you know, yeah, so there's the two main um, types of books that he, Sonic Bond do is the on track, which is the every album, every song, and also the decades um, set. And every so often he takes on a book um, sort of completely different so I was fortunate that he took on the new metal book um, as a separate sort of entity and then yeah I got the corn book which was next which I pitched to him and um, so I did that one and he was I did a sort of pitch in Slipknot and Linkin Park as well and he was um, I think he wanted to see how the new metal book was going to sell first because the at the point of when I signed with him a lot of the books he did were bands from the sort of seventies and eighties, not necessarily um, any sort of modern bands. Um, so yeah, I got those two done, and then he actually asked me if I would do the tour book, um, which so they're not a band that I would have considered. I mean, I'm a fan of the band, but they're not one I would have considered writing about. But I'm glad he did really because uh, that was it was a very it was a learning experience for me as well. I guess um, for a lot of the songs, really sort of doing extensive research and digging into stories behind the songs and the band are, the band are an enigma in themselves really so um yeah I'm, I'm glad that he did that and i'm quite happy with how the book came out um where do you start with researching them because you mentioned there that they are an enigma they, they, they seem to have become huge all, all on their own terms yeah they're very different um Obviously, there's always been progressive rock bands, um, but just the way they do things, um, the, 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 the promotion they do, the, the visual aspect of Tool is almost as important as the audio aspect. So Adam Jones, the guitarist, he, for, for a lot of their career, he's done the, the videos and the directing and the, the ideas behind them as well. Um, and of course, the music that they create they generally, Adam Jones, Justin Chancellor, the bassist, and Danny Carey, the drummer, they generally get together first um, and do all the writing together, which can go on for years. 
Um, and it's only when they're pretty much uh, happy with the music and then they'll hand it to Maynard, the vocalist, who will then put his vocals and lyrics to the pieces. So it's, it's a very long process with Tool. The last album was sort of over 13 years between uh, Fear Inoculum was the, the latest album and uh, 10,000 days before that. So there was a long process with that kind of thing. The, the, the lyrical content that Maynard uh, sort of talks about, a lot of it is quite mythological. Um, there's a lot, there's a few songs that he ends up becoming more personal with. He was not always that kind of person that wanted to, to talk about his own sort of perhaps life. Um, I've got his memoir and again, it's, he does talk about parts of his earlier years and that, but he still remains quite vague in, in that sense, I guess. So, uh, yeah, in terms of the research, obviously the internet's a wonderful thing. Um, I, I had all the albums anyway, so music-wise, I was pretty, yeah, pretty sort of knowledgeable of the music. But yeah, obviously, then it comes to sort of scouring the internet for interviews with magazines before um, studying the lyrics. Um, a lot of their lyrics are open to interpretation. So, in terms of the book, I've written about perhaps. Um, some of the, the ways I see some of the lyrics as with some of them that, I have, that they have actually discussed before. Again, not often do they talk to the media about their songs and their meanings. So it was a very extensive research period, um, but also that's partly the, uh, the most uh, enjoyed, enjoyable part of writing a book for me. Did you find when you're doing the research that it's normally one or two members that do all the interviews or do all four of them do interviews? Um, a lot of them, also a lot of them, Maynard, he, he does do a lot of the interviews, but more he'll return to the same people. So it might necessarily, uh, Joe, Joe Rogan, who did the, uh, the Rogan, the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, Maynard's been on there, uh, three times, I think. So he tends to stick with the people he's been to before, because if you look on YouTube, a lot of the, the old interviews he perhaps did with, um, music journalists, he could grasp pretty early on if they weren't as knowledgeable on the band. So he would be very sarcastic and and um, perhaps appear disinterested. So um, I believe Danny Carey is one of the main ones that does interviews. Uh, and Justin, he does a fair few of them as well. So they have all at one point sort of spoken to media at various places. But yeah, there's a couple of them that are more active in that sense. So Matt, what did the band do that that appealed to you in the beginning? And were you in into the band from the first record? Uh, I wasn't. No, I mean I'm I'm 36 now. So I first got into music in in the year 2000 when the new metal movement was sort of you know at its peak. So I was sort of the early bands I was getting into was Corn and Limp Bizkit and Deftones and stuff like that. Um, and I do remember that in 2001 when Tool released the Lateralis album the music video for Schism was on the music channels over here in England and that was the first time I'd heard um, heard of Tool um, and it was the video then that grasped me because in between all these music videos of you know um, sort of girls semi-naked dancing and uh, the new metal bands dressed in Adidas clothing and things like that then you got this band called Tool and the music video it didn't feature the band members in it which added to its mysticism um, the the video itself, um, the claymation uh, technique that they was using for a lot of their early videos. Um, it was very interesting. So Lateralis was the first album I bought and not being a particularly 
big fan of progressive rock at that time. Um, it was obviously something completely different that I was listening to there. A lot of the songs going on for seven, eight, nine minutes. Um, but there was a two or three on there in the first couple of listens that really sort of caught my um, attention. And then over the years, of course, yeah, they have been, they've, been, they've released new albums. And I was also able to go back in their early years where their music was more considered alternative metal. There was less dynamics to the music, less layers. It was more sort of harder and edgier, I guess. Um, and it was only with uh, Onima in 1996, I believe, on the spot here. That was when they sort of really went into their progressive leanings. Um, and that was when the, the era that everybody seems to love of Tool, that's when it really began. Um, Lateralist, that's the one with the human body, isn't it? The art it is, yeah. I remember a friend of mine mm-hmm, gave yeah. me that a long time ago. And I remember opening it and it had no information on it at all. Mm-hmm, right, yep. and that—that yeah. that to me was like in the in the in the information age and the internet and everything that really stood out to me. I was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> mm. Yeah, for the band, it's it's always been about the music. Um, they, they've not really been ones to you know be poster boys or anything like that. It's always been let the music do the talking, let the artwork. They've they've had um, Cam De Leon and Alex Gray, who have been the two main uh, artists they've worked with over the years who have you know um, created the artworks and things like that so yeah I remember laterality yeah the booklet obviously yeah you turn the page and there'd be another layer of the human body exposed as you went along um, yeah very much it's all about the music uh, and the art for those just at all I'd love to know how they were able to do that for a label to allow a band to do something like that because I, you might be able to correct me here, but I can't think of another band other than Tool that can pull off something like that and become big. Yeah, especially back that, back then. I mean, they were signed to a, a label called Zoo Entertainment, and when they signed their contract, they wanted to make sure that they was they remained in complete control of everything, of the artistic endeavours, uh, of the music. You know, um, obviously Zoo, they was in charge of distributing the records and getting the band out there as such but Tool wanted to remain in, remain in control of the the actual product they was putting out so I guess that helped them and they wasn't obviously on a massive record label like the Sonys or the Universals um, and of course when <clears throat> when they signed to Zoo Zoo was a fairly mid-level record label I guess at best so Tool when they came up and of course they started earning Zoo a lot of money I guess Zoo sort of realised well yeah no, we've got a We've got to pay attention to what these guys are doing. We've got to let them take the ball and run with it, really. Yeah. Um, how often did you listen to the albums before you wrote the book? So I was listening to the... I would listen to each one all the way through and make notes. I would then sort of go online and see if I could find little pieces here and there of, of, of the specific tracks, um, re-listen to the album... Um, and you know, with headphones to to hear the extra depth that sort of you know, only headphones can really pick up, and then and I, I was doing each album in you know specifically as we went along, and um, and then yeah, once the 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 main manuscript was done, I went back and listened to all the albums again. So last year um, and early this year, I imagine that the um, the Spotify playlists that you get at the end of the year, there'll be a lot of tool in the in at least the top two or three because I did go through them a lot 
Um, but again, that's a, as I find as I'm getting older as well, I'm enjoying the music perhaps more now than I did before. So when you are really having to sit there and you know properly pay attention, um, 10,000 Days, uh, the album which came out in um, 2006, that was one I hadn't particularly grasped as much when it first came out, but I think it's quickly become at least my joint favourite of the whole of Tool's discography by being able to go back and methodically listen to, to it track by track. I was going to ask you that, which, which album did you undervalue when it actually came out and you've already answered that question um, yeah definitely was, would have been that one okay was this a, an easier or a harder book to write than the one on corn that you did track by track it was definitely harder because um, you know because of the, the the technical aspect of tool and and the progressive nature of the you know of their of their music corn um I had more of a knowledge of those because I have followed them from 2000, literally, you know, non-stop. Uh, every record they put out, I'll buy on vinyl and, um, and listen. Um, but of course, Korn is, while they are still, in my mind, a brilliant band, you know, their tracks generally are sort of three to four minutes long. It's just, you know, they're just sort of metal anthems, really, whereas Tool's progressive side and and the percussion element of Danny Carey's drum kits and and you know the stories that have been divulged that come out about the songs and everything like that yeah the tour one was a was definitely a lot tougher to write i guess especially in terms of the the writing you know talk perhaps talking about music in a more technical nature as well which is something i mean i'm always learning every book i write i'm always still learning um in terms of music methodology and everything uh so yeah tall has definitely been the trickiest one but um I guess it's probably been the most rewarding when I got my complimentary copies through, and it's come out great. There's a there's a picture section in the in the middle there for 16 pages, which covers a lot of you know the artwork and pictures that myself and the publisher chose to to include. Um, and also with these books, I write them uh, as a biography as well. So there was a biography written on tour called Unleashed by a fellow English writer, Joel McIver, uh, back I know in Joel. I believe it's 2000. Joel's yeah, great, so back guy. into he is, yeah. Um, so I think that was 2011 he wrote that one. So, of course, he didn't uh, get to include the Fear Inoculum album. So I read his book as well and where perhaps he perhaps used um, small little um, mentions of certain bits of historical data or whatever, I decided to sort of go deeper into that, talk about the record studios that perhaps Tool visited, uh, venues, big, some of the bigger venues they played, like the history of those kind of things. Um, basically, to try and yeah, do it as a as an as as up to up to date uh, biography as I can. So, of course, when this book was handed in, um, I was able to go up to uh, I think it was April of this year. So I managed to also include the the newest track the band released, which was uh, a retake or a new version of uh, Opiate. They called Opiate Two. So I was managed able to get that in the book as well. Okay, um, would you consider Maynard a reluctant rock star? Um, in a way, yes. I mean, if you read his autobiography, as while he was a fairly popular kid, all he wanted to do was rock and be a rock star. Not necessarily for the for the same reasons, perhaps other musicians get into the business. He um, he eventually sort of realised he had a decent voice, so he could become a singer and and let his own emotions out there. Um, but yeah, in the sort of late or mid to late nineties, when Tall was kind of getting big. 
that was when he um, assumed different identities and personas on stage. So he would wear wigs or uh, women's clothing, for example, to kind of um, be the way where people would perhaps um, remember him. So when he had a had his first son, he was perhaps able to go out dressed in his own attire and dressed, you know, not having to worry about wearing a, uh, a wig because obviously he had a bald head and stuff. And in that sense, he was hoping then that people wouldn't be able to recognise him on the street. And I think for a, for a while in those early days, he was able to, to go about his business largely undetected. But yeah, of course, in the in the years that followed and the bigger tool got, um, yeah, I'd imagine he can't really go too many places without being spotted and potentially being stopped for a chat or an autograph or whatever. Mm. Was it difficult to write the book knowing that a lot of their music uh, it's the visual live experience and you can't really cover that in the book when you're talking about the album uh, Yeah, I mean I, I saw Tool this year in the UK when they finally came over over here and obviously yeah, the visual aspect of Tool uh, the backdrop they had on the stage it was a mesmerising uh, yeah, show um, again, like you said, yeah, potentially you was, you was actually watching the visuals more than actually listening to the music. Um, but yeah, obviously the book is all about the songs. So um, there's only sort of, they do have done two or three music videos per album. So there's a lot of songs there that have no visual aspect to them. So um, it was easy, I guess, for those ones to, to talk about the songs and, uh, and the structures and any potential stories there uh, for those. Um, how many times have you seen them live? Uh, that's the second time. The first time was at a, a download festival a good few years ago. So um, the festival environment was good. Um, but actually seeing them at their own show, um, obviously that's where you want to see a band. Um, it, it's, it's a whole different experience, isn't it? Because they get more stage time. It's them and their adoring crowds. Um, so you know that everybody that's there is to see that headline band. Hmm. Um. And do they do they play the songs the same way as on the record, or because they're a progressive rock band, there's improvisation there? There's a little bit of improvisation through the musicians. Um. Generally, for this tour, so they did change up their set list. They left out a lot of their what people consider to be the the greatest hits. Um. Which in a way irked me because there was three or four of my favourite songs of theirs which they have generally played up until this tour which they they left out this time but um, yeah most of the tracks were uh, fairly close to the studio versions they played a track called Push It which uh, was on the Onima album and over the years they do actually mix up in their live show they sometimes play a different completely different version to the studio one so they released a box set in 2002 called Survival and a live um, a live take of the, the alternative version was on there and that was um, amazing really to, to hear the music and how it was performed um, but yeah this time obviously yes the, the guitarist a few little solos here and there Danny Carey uh, played a drum solo um, uh, but yeah apart, apart from that they generally just got on with the songs in their in their uh, standard way Have you um, have you gone down the rabbit hole with the side projects that some of them have done I know Maynard's done a couple of a Perfect Circle albums. Yep, and at the back of the book, uh, after talking about the whole tool stuff, I've gone into the, a lot of the band members' uh, side projects. So as you said, yeah, yeah, Maynard's main bands are Pussifer and A Perfect Circle. 
the other the other two bands that he's you know he's done a, a lot of work with. Um, and then I've got the book in front of me. I'll quickly fast forward. So uh, one of the actual projects that uh, is one of my favourites, uh, Danny Carey did one called Legend of the Seagullman, which was uh, with one of the guys from Mastodon. Um, there was a few members in there kind of talking about um, aquatic themes of your mythological creatures and stuff like that. That's a really good one to listen to. It's kind of a bit sludgy, a bit like Mastodon, um, a bit stonery in a way as well, um, with progress, progressive textures as well. So that's one of the, the pick of my uh, sort of tool side projects. Um, but yeah, Paul Damore, the original bassist, he had a couple of projects called Lusk and Fearsome Engine there in here. Uh, Lesser Key was another one, that, or the latest band that Paul Damore was part of before he's, I think, I believe he's now with Ministry. And then also in the book, I've sort of included a few of the bands that are inspired by Tool that have sort of openly admitted uh, bands like Chevelle. There's a few Australian bands, uh, Carnival and Cog. Mastodon have admitted being influenced by Tool as well. Um, and I was also able to find, so a lot of the Tool stuff, they very rarely do any B-sides. They generally just, what, what you get on the album is the stuff they've recorded for the for that, that period. But um, there's a handful of songs where um, members of Tool have featured on. So obviously, um, Know Your Enemy by Rage Against the Machine, that fe- featured Maynard for a little bit um, early on in his career. He did Passenger, but guest vocals on Passenger by Deftones. Um, the Tool and Rage Against the Machine collaboration that unfortunately never saw the light of day officially. Um, so yeah, I've tried to cover as much as I can for for any Tool fans that, that may want to pick up the book. Um, and for those that are perhaps only getting into the band the last couple of years or, you know, maybe in the next couple of years, it, it, I'd like to think it, it could act as a, a nice introduction for, for fans to sort of learn more about the band. Um, I just got a couple more questions before I leave you go, Matt. Um, yeah. After doing a book like this and being a fan of the band, if you were to get an interview yeah. with one of the guys in the band, just say Maynard, what's the first question you'd want to ask him that, you know, you'd said to yourself before going in, I, I, I really want to know this? Um, off the top of my head, I haven't got a clue, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, i possibly when's the next album going to come because obviously the last one was 13 and a half years in between but no I don't know I mean yeah I've, I've, I've been a music journalist and I've written for magazines and stuff and, and and did my own podcast so when it comes to an interview obviously you always get the questions ready and prepared and stuff but yeah I'm not really sure to be honest um, a lot of interviews I have seen sort of talk about uh, the bands you know, sort of how they sort of got into the, the progressive ideas of their music and stuff like that but yeah I'm afraid I haven't got an answer for that one um, and of course getting an interview with any of them it can be quite tricky like I said I think Danny Carey's probably the most open to interviews I did try and reach out to, to management and stuff um, when I was in the early stages of the book but I didn't hear anything back which is fine but yes um, you never say never, I suppose. There's always one day you could potentially catch up with them, and, and a couple of them are uh, fairly active on Instagram as well, so I guess you never know that if you decide to hashtag them one day or tag them in a post, there's always a chance they may see it and, and react if they feel like it. What sort of feedback do you get from doing books like this, the album-by-album <laughs> ones? Because in my experience like with social media... You can like something, mm-hmm. and if someone hates it, they're very vociferous about 
how 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 can you like yep. that? It's a load of rubbish and all that. You, like you're putting a book out on corn, and I'm sure you you love a lot of their stuff, and you don't like a lot some of their stuff. And I'm sure the same might be with for tool. What sort of yeah. feedback do you generally get from that? And can can you even pay attention to a lot of that? I have to be honest. I have had to learn that since I've been a writer, you do have to kind of shut off from the negative comments um i was very fortunate with the corn book that there's a couple of really dedicated fan groups uh through facebook which was letting me share and promote the book through there um and that sold really well um i didn't really obviously a couple of the early questions was was you able to speak to the band and you know stuff like that uh but generally the it was very supportive for the corn book the tour one um again a fair bit of support and I know there's been a fair few pre-orders the book actually comes out in the UK over here uh, this coming Thursday but I've heard as well that tall fans can be very um, very protective of their band I guess um, and there was a lot of negative comments about me doing this as an unofficial book um, so yeah a lot of them were basically sort of saying it's not going to be worth the paper it's written on blah 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 um, so yeah I, I have had to learn to be to kind of shut off from those kind of comments um, but my main I mean, ever since I wanted to be a writer my main I just do it for the love of the of writing um, I've always said that if I sell one copy I'm happy I write about the things that I would like to read about um, so that is the main reason I do these it's not to make money because you know there's not, there's not much money in, in book publishing and book writing these days anyway unless you get a, perhaps if you're less uh, unless you're a writer of fiction um and get good deals in that sense so um no i do it for the love of it um it's nice to see the books come through the through the post when they're finished and you see it for the first time and uh, and you, and when you notice you haven't made any spelling mistakes or any grammatical <laughs> errors and it's all come out it's all come out nice and professionally so no those are the real reasons i've done it and yeah if people want to buy it then fair enough if not then you know it's it's not a problem now if someone and i'm including myself haven't haven't owned any tool albums where would you recommend mm-hmm. i start a lot of people say Lateralis is the band's best album. I personally prefer uh, Onima, which came out in 1996. So there's a little bit of the the previous era of Tool in there, the, you know, the kind of alternative metal era. Um, but then as the album progresses, you can hear the new wave of Tool coming in, the, the, the textures and the layers. And it's, uh, it's still my favourite uh, album of Tool's. Um, but 10,000 Days, as I said earlier on, that's very close second, I think, as well. Now, they actually went heavier for that album. Maynard was dealing with the, the loss of his mother um, in the lead-up to that album, and a couple of the songs especially become very personal to him, talking about his mother on there. Um, and, yeah, like I said, the guitars were amped up and the drums were heavier. There's some banging tunes on there. But, yeah, I would say Onima, for me, is my personal favourite tour uh, record. Mm, the easy answer you, you could have given me there was start in the beginning. It is, but I think um, I think the, the tool that most people know is the progressive tool, um, and Onima for me, like I said, is the the next wave of of tools incarnation. So yeah, I think that's the the best way to start, and then just pick pick through the rest um, at your leisure. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to give out all the information where people can get can buy the book? Yeah, so any listeners in the UK, uh, the book does come out on Thursday. Uh, you can pre-order it now via Amazon, who I believe are doing a nice little discount on it. 
any of the UK uh, people, WH Smiths and Waterstones are selling it online. In America, you can get it at Amazon, Walmart, and Barnes and Noble. And in terms of Australia, I know Booktopia are going to be selling it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of places. Sort of, you know, it's going to be sold throughout Europe and uh, and Japan and places like that. So uh, I'm not sure of the actual sort of stockist, but it is available worldwide. Uh, Thursday, as I said, is for the UK and then Europe and uh, America and the rest of the world. They always come out two months later, so it's going to be the end of September. So. Okay. See you guys over there. And what's the what's the next projects you're working on, or, or can you even tell me about them? Because I have enough authors on. Yeah. When I ask them that question, yeah, they they can't give me the information. Oh no, I've already done another one. Um, that's with the pub. That's with Stephen. That's on it. But now uh, the next one is about faith no more. Um, so that's a decade series book. That's all about faith no more throughout the 1990s. And uh, I'm already putting together some plans for a book which um, I may be looking elsewhere if I can get it published. This is one I'm looking, I'm very interested about the whole era of music piracy and the impacts it had on the music industry. And I also want to sort of talk about its everlasting impact as well as how uh, streaming has been integrated to try and, you know, um, perhaps balance the music industry a bit. Um, NFTs that are coming out now as another way of releasing music so that one could be kind of like an educational book, historical, of course, as well. Um, and I've already spoken to a few people in the industry talking about you know their experiences of how they dealt at their record labels with piracy and whatnot. But uh, yeah, the next one is Faith No More, and in the UK that is out at the end of October. Faith No More in the nineties didn't they have only three albums? Uh, they did, but um, luckily with this one we decided we... So even though, yes, it is the 1990s, we're starting it off with The Real Thing, ah, which okay. came in 1989. Yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, the band split up uh, in 1998, but there's a lot of stories and obviously talking about the albums, how good the band were and their touring life. And uh, and again, so, solo projects and side projects. Mike Patton has done God knows how many <laughs> various uh, bands and you know whatnot. So uh, yeah, we've managed to... I managed to make the word count for it at least, so that's the main thing. And uh, yeah, that again, that's been uh, very enjoyable because Faith No More, uh, they are one of my favourite bands and the real thing is probably in my top three albums of all time. So uh, yeah, that was one that I actually put to Stephen and uh, yeah, we got that one done as well. Nice, nice. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much for having me on your show. No problem. And uh, have a good rest of the day. And if something comes along in the future, like maybe the Faith No More book or a book, further on down reach out to me and I'll get you on and I'll uh, help you promote it yeah awesome thanks a lot alright have a good rest of the day yeah you too take okay. care bye alright and it's a reminder again that is Tool every album every song by Matt Carp. and obviously from the interview you can see that he's already working on more stuff as well so be on the lookout for that if you like a Tool or Corn or a lot of the other stuff that he's written then uh, definitely check that out. And just a reminder as well that, you know, that On Track series is pretty extensive that there's just, I think right now, at least there's something, I think around like 63 books total within that series from, you know, ELP and the Beatles, uh, Deep Purple and Rainbow. There's one of the ones that's out there. The Stones, Queen, just, yeah, just all kinds of stuff, you know, the clash, it goes across all kinds of genres as well. But uh, that publisher has definitely put a lot of different books out 
in that on track series. So if you guys were liking this one, this was actually intended to go out a couple of weeks ago, but then the Joel thing rolled in as well. And we felt we needed to get that out quick for Joel because that was a tour that was imminent and, uh, you know, no good promoting a tour that's already gone by. And then this fit in because at this point, the book hasn't been released worldwide yet. So we still get to get a lot of their pre-publicity for Matt on his book as well. So I think it all worked out totally for everybody. And, you know, talking about books and all that as well, I am trying to work out a thing right now to have Jim Santoro back on the show. If you've been listening for any length of time, you may remember we had Jim on. He is the author of the Underrated Rock book. And Jim has a sequel to that book coming out called Underrated Rock Book 2. Uh, spelled T-O-O in this case. I thought that was kind of a clever twist. So I am working up with Jim right now to see if I can schedule something in with him before that book gets released in uh, in October. So if you like the first one, then you are definitely probably going to like the second one as well, where he talks about another 250 underrated albums. And I did check while I was doing the uh, recording of this, and it is available as a pre-order up on Amazon right now. So if you want to get in early on that one, then uh, definitely do that. But that is, I'm trying to work on that one as well, get another author on the show in short order. And in addition to that, we are desperately trying to figure out when we can get together to do the next installment of the Maiden discography. If you remember, the last installment went up to 1986 with Somewhere in Time. So the next installment would be picking up on in uh, 1988 with Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, doing No Prayer for the Dying, and then up to Fear of the Dark from uh, 1992. So essentially mid-80s to the early 90s. So we're trying to work that out to see when Richie can get down to the studio and we can knock that one out as well. And you would think that we'd be able to do this easily, but uh, yeah, life's just kind of a clusterfuck right now and we just haven't been able to get it together in uh, one single day and make it happen, but uh, we're, we're giving it a shot. So one thing I do know we are going to be getting together for as of right now anyways, because the tickets have been bought, is that we do plan on being at the... Uh, Joel Hoekstra Acoustic Show up at uh, the Tupelo Music Hall in Derry at the end of the month. So if you happen to be at that show, uh, Richie and I will should be uh, rocking out at Table 7 right up front. And uh, so we'll be at that one. And also before that, if again you're in that whole Boston, Worcester, New Hampshire area, that I will be out at the Last in Line show at Rascals in Worcester on the 24th of this month as well. So, uh, yeah, I should be there probably early. Richie may be there. I'm not sure yet. Haven't talked to him about that, but uh, I'll be there with my girlfriend, and we should be uh, probably at one of the VIT tables or something like that. But, yeah, so we'll be over there at Rascals. So if you're uh, out there, you happen to see me, come say hi. I'd love to meet all the listeners. But for this week, that's it. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Uh.
You're still here? It's over. Go home.